You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 217 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. We covered a lot of ground in the last episode as we set the stage for the battles of Ayuka and Corinth. And with this week's show, we want to pick back up right where we left off with that story, which was with Earl Van Dorn finally letting Sterling Price know that he was ready to cooperate with Price. Yep, uh, it was after his plan to retake Baton Rouge failed that Van Dorn informed Price that he was finally ready to cooperate with him. And FYI, but just yesterday, we released the first of what will be two members episodes about the Battle of Baton Rouge. So we're in the middle of sharing that story with the members of the Strawfoot Brigade. But anyway, here with Van Dorn and Price, Van Dorn said he needed two weeks to get ready, but suggested that then they take their combined forces up into western Tennessee, march up into western Kentucky, and capture Paducah on the Ohio River. Van Dorn was given to flights of strategical fancy, and this idea was another example of that. Price and Van Dorn together might have a chance of retaking Corinth if luck was on their side, but the notion that they could water their horses in the Ohio River was absurd. At any rate, although his strategic dreams would have to be toned down to reality, it was good for the Confederates that Van Dorn was at least ready to work with Price, because over in Tennessee, Braxton Bragg was getting ready to move out from Chattanooga, and the success of Bragg's upcoming campaign depended to some degree on better cooperation between the two rebel commanders he'd left behind in Mississippi. Bragg had bombarded Price with several messages sent from August 4th through the 27th, urging Price to move north from Tupelo and keep the Federals in northern Mississippi and western Tennessee occupied so that they wouldn't be able to continue sending reinforcements to Don Carlos Buell. And on September 1st, Bragg informed Price that Buell was falling back on Nashville and urged Price to keep a close eye on William Rosecrans at Corinth and to pursue Rosecrans if the federal commander marched into Tennessee to directly support Buell. In Price's mind, these instructions from Bragg brought the situation to a crisis point. Price sent a telegram to Van Dorn the next day, telling Van Dorn that he couldn't wait for him any longer. Price said he had to march north toward Corinth in three days. In order to support Bragg, Price felt it was absolutely imperative that he march against the Federals in northern Mississippi as soon as possible. 
and Price was ready to move. So while waiting for Van Dorn to join him, Price moved his 16,000 or so troops up to Guntown, about 15 miles north of Tupelo. Price had sent Van Dorn that urgent telegram saying he had to march north in three days, but Price actually waited seven days before sending Van Dorn another message, saying he regretted not being able to wait any longer. An increasingly anxious Price had in fact waited longer than he felt he should have for Van Dorn to join him. But finally on September 11th, when Van Dorn still hadn't shown up, Price could wait no longer, and he ordered his little army to march north from Guntown. When Sterling Price marched northward, his target was the little town of Ayuka in northern Mississippi. Ayuka was located 23 miles east of Corinth, and it was the easternmost point on the Memphis and Charleston Railroad that was occupied by federal troops. Price hoped to either find that the Yankees had evacuated Ayuka, or that he would be able to swallow up any small enemy garrison there. This would put him in an excellent position to determine whether Rosecrans had left Corinth to reinforce Buell. If Rosecrans had left Corinth, then Price could also move into Tennessee to chase after him and support Bragg. If Rosecrans hadn't moved, though, Price could easily move west from Iuka and attack him at Corinth. Basically, it would all depend on what Price found out when he got to Iuka. The first of Price's Confederates to reach Iuka were Colonel Frank Armstrong's cavalry, who rode in on September 13th. The Federals were actually caught in the middle of evacuating the place. With a substantial number of his troops having been sent off to reinforce Buell, Rosecrans began to draw in the detachments at Iuka and other spots east of Corinth, bringing them back to Corinth to help protect the vital railroad junction there. By September 13th, only Colonel Robert Murphy's 8th Wisconsin was still at Iuka, preparing to escort the remaining supplies that had been stockpiled there back to Corinth. The first contact between Armstrong's rebel horsemen and Murphy's Union infantry startled both forces. A brief skirmish ensued before the Confederates retreated and raced back to report the Federals' presence to Sterling Price. Murphy's reaction was just as jittery. The Confederates had already cut the telegraph line and the railroad eight miles to the west, between Iuka and Corinth, and when he discovered this, Murphy decided to skedaddle as fast as possible. He abandoned all the remaining supplies in Iuka without destroying them, and he did reach Corinth without trouble. If we fast forward for a moment to December 1862, we'll see that in a similar incident, Murphy loses Ulysses S. Grant's supply depot at Holly Springs to Confederate raiders during Grant's first campaign against Vicksburg, and that leads to Murphy's dismissal from the service. Exactly. Um, but at any rate, here at Iuka, Sterling Price reacted swiftly to Armstrong's report of contact. Price decided to keep his troops moving on a night march through the bright moonlight that bathed the landscape. As a result, Confederate infantry reached Iuka at 9 a.m. on the morning of September 14th, but they found an empty but well-supplied Yankee encampment. The Federals had not only left their tents still standing, 
but had left behind tons of equipment and commissary stores, including a fully loaded train left sitting on the railroad tracks. One of Price's men, a member of the 3rd Louisiana, said, quote, The ragged and half-starved soldiers feasted on good things for once, and had more than a square meal. The soldiers feasted, frolicked, and were in high spirits at the sudden change in their condition. Price was able to clarify a great deal about federal dispositions after he reached Iuka, but what he didn't know was that Van Dorn was scheming behind his back even before their forces linked up. When Van Dorn learned that Price had started his march to Iuka, Van Dorn informed him that he would be ready to move out on September 12th, but that he wanted some of Price's wagons, men, and artillery. Price fired back, making it very clear that he couldn't spare anything or anyone to send to Van Dorn. In a huff, Van Dorn complained directly to Jefferson Davis and asked him to order Price to send what he'd asked for, and telling Davis that everything would be hunky-dory if only he had official authority to command all Confederate troops in Mississippi. Remember, technically, since they were both major generals, Van Dorn could only issue orders to Price when the two men were actually in the same place at the same time. Well, at any rate, without knowing of Bragg's earlier instructions for Van Dorn to cooperate with Price, Jefferson Davis telegraphed on September 11th, giving Van Dorn the command authority he wanted. None of this was yet known to Sterling Price. In any case, Price had too much on his mind just then to deal with that order, even if he'd known about it. That's because, as I said a moment ago, Price, after reaching Iuka, had discovered accurate information about the federal situation. Rosecrans had indeed sent a large force of three divisions to help Buell, but he still had two divisions at Corinth. And so, as Price's chief of staff, Major Thomas Sneed, later reported, quote, after some hesitation, Price felt that it was his duty to look after Rosecrans and what was left of his army. In other words, rather than trying to chase down the reinforcements that Rosecrans had already sent off, Price decided he ought to stay in northern Mississippi and prevent Rosecrans from entirely leaving the area to go help Buell. So he sent a message to Van Dorn saying that he, quote, would turn back, and cooperate with him in an attack on Corinth. But immediately after Price sent that message to Van Dorn, he received another dispatch from Bragg, urging him to quickly move up into Tennessee to directly support Bragg's Kentucky campaign. By this time, Price felt nearly paralyzed by indecision over how to best use his small army. Price was caught between a rock and a hard place, no doubt about it, and he was still uncertain what course to take, when, on September 17th, he sent a message to Van Dorn, saying, quote, I cannot remain inactive any longer, and must move either with you against Rosecrans or toward Kentucky. Then, one of Van Dorn's staff officers arrived at Iuka on the night of September 18th, with word of Jefferson Davis's order giving Van Dorn command authority over Price's little army. The staff officer was there to help plan a link-up between Van Dorn's forces and Price's. And, just like that, the responsibility for deciding what to do was taken out of Price's hands, or lifted from his shoulders, depending on which metaphor you prefer to use. 
Anyway, Price immediately issued orders for his men to spend the next day preparing to depart Ayuka, after which they would march southward to link up with Earl Van Dorn. But just as Sterling Price had hit Ayuka in the middle of a federal withdrawal, now Ulysses S. Grant would attack Price as he was preparing to evacuate the town. Yep, uh, Price had already spent way too much time at Ayuka, long enough, in fact, to present a tempting target to Grant, who was now on the move, maneuvering two columns of Union troops with the intention of catching Price in a pincer movement and defeating him at Ayuka while Van Dorn was still many miles away. Ulysses S. Grant had been keeping a close eye on Confederate movements for many weeks and had also been repositioning his forces to compensate for the transfer of troops to reinforce Buell. Two divisions of Rosecrans' Army of the Mississippi were still at Corinth, which at that time was also Grant's headquarters. Also at Corinth were Thomas Davies' division and two brigades of John MacArthur's division from the Army of the Tennessee. EOC Ord's division of the Army of the Tennessee was at Jackson, Tennessee, 55 miles north of Corinth. The remaining brigade of MacArthur's division was with Ord at Jackson. As finally settled, Grant's command was divided into three wings, or detachments. William Tecumseh Sherman led the right wing, with his headquarters at Memphis, Tennessee. Ord commanded the center wing, and Rosecrans had the left. Grant expected troops at any point in his department would be ready to march quickly to any spot that was threatened by the enemy. Price's move to Iuka led Grant to decide to launch a preemptive strike against Price, defeating him while Van Dorn was still many miles away. Grant had been receiving intelligence for many days indicating Price was either going to march up into Tennessee to directly support Bragg or he was going to cooperate with Van Dorn in an attack on Corinth. Either way, by striking Price first, Grant would derail the rebels' plans. From Corinth, Grant sent a message to General-in-Chief Henry Halleck, telling him that, quote, If I can, I will attack Price before he crosses Bear Creek. If he can be beaten there, it will prevent either the design to go north or to unite forces and attack here. To support the strike against Price, Grant moved Stephen Hurlbut's division from Memphis to Bolivar, Tennessee, and ordered Ord's troops to come down from Jackson to Corinth. Like a chess player, Grant was moving his pieces around the board with an eye toward not only countering any possible moves by his opponent, but also with the intention of launching an attack of his own. Grant was confident Van Dorn couldn't reach Corinth in less than four days, so he left only enough troops there to prevent it from being captured by any Confederate cavalry. All the other troops Grant had on hand were started eastward for the attack on Price. And so, just as Braxton Bragg up in Kentucky was about to capture Munfordville on September 17th and bag over 4,000 Union prisoners... The action here in northern Mississippi is heating up also. In fact, Grant ordered his troops into motion on September 16th. Rosecrans was to leave Corinth, staying south of the railroad, and on his march to Iuka, he was to leave a couple of detachments at key spots 
to warn of a possible attack on Corinth by Van Dorn. While Rosecrans positioned himself to attack Iuka from the south, Ord was to march along the rail line from Corinth to Burnsville, where he would leave the railroad, move north, and prepare to attack Iuka from that direction. With Rosecrans attacking Iuka from the south and Ord from the north, Grant's plan to defeat Price appeared to have an excellent chance of succeeding, especially if Price could be caught napping. Ord's arm of the pincer was comprised of about 6,500 men, while Rosecrans' column was nearly 9,000 strong. Brigadier General Charles Hamilton commanded one of Rosecrans' divisions, while Brigadier General David Stanley led the other. But Grant believed that Price had as many as 15,000 troops, so there was the possibility that if Price concentrated his entire command against one of Grant's columns, the rebels might be able to defeat that part of the Federal force in detail. The terrain also made this possibility more likely. You see, the ground between Corinth and Iuka was so rough and covered with trees and thick brush that it was difficult for cavalry to maneuver off the roads and virtually impossible for infantry units to do so. There were also few secondary byways that cut through that tangled landscape, and that meant the only roads over which large numbers of troops could easily move were the roads that Grant's men were already using to march toward Iuka. And so, without fully appreciating it, Grant was sending his men on a pincer movement through country so rough that the two arms of the pincer would not be able to easily support or even communicate with each other. It was a risky plan that promised either rich rewards or dismal failure. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you, perhaps, understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts.
With Grant's plan being so risky, it was fortunate for him that Sterling Price was completely unaware of the threat to his small army, and the federal columns were able to move toward Iuka undetected. Ord reached a point within six miles of Iuka by September 18th and captured a few rebel pickets. Grant moved his headquarters to Burnsville so he could be closer to the action while trying to coordinate the movements of both pincers. Since Ord was poised to attack Iuka the next day, Grant urged Rosecrans to get a move on and support Ord, reminding Rosecrans that both columns might have to fall back to Corinth as early as September 20th if it was necessary to defend it against an attack by Van Dorn. Time, Grant was aware, was in short supply. But Rosecrans' progress over the rugged landscape had been slow. He had a much longer route than did Ord, and nearly a third more troops to handle as well. He dispatched a message to Grant, which arrived late on the night of September 18th, saying that he was nearly 20 miles short of Iuka, but would start his men at 4.30 the next morning. Rosecrans told Grant, quote, "...shall not therefore be in before one or two o'clock on the afternoon of the 19th, but when we come in, we'll endeavor to do it strongly." When Grant received Rosecrans' message, he wasn't happy about the situation, since he feared his carefully laid plan to trap Price was in danger of unraveling. But at that point there was little he could do about it, except reluctantly order Ord to delay his attack on September 19th until he heard the sound of Rosecrans' guns. On Friday, September 19, 1862, Hamilton's division led Rosecrans' march with Colonel John B. Sanborn's brigade in the lead. The Federals began to encounter rebel pickets when they were five miles from Iuka. A few companies of blue-coated infantry were thrown out to deal with them and to spearhead the rest of the advance toward Iuka. With no good maps and with dense woods and thick brush closely hemming in the narrow road, no one on the Federal side knew exactly what lay ahead. Hamilton was told by a guide at 4 p.m. that Iuka was only two miles away, so Hamilton halted his advance and allowed his men to rest in the roadway. The head of Sanborn's brigade, quote, had just finished ascending a long hill, from the top of which the ground sloped in undulations toward the front, end quote. The skirmishers who had been leading the advance could see that a sizable number of Confederates were assembled in the woods, quote, a few hundred yards ahead. Those Confederates were Brigadier General Louis A. Bear's 2nd Brigade of Henry Little's division. A. Bear had about 1,800 infantry from Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, and Mississippi, supported by two Missouri batteries. Price had ordered them south of Iuka when he realized the Yankees were approaching the town from that direction. Price, who had been busily making arrangements for the evacuation of Iuka in preparation to join Van Dorn, had become aware the night before of the presence of Ord's Federals north of Iuka, and he had deployed most of his men to counter that threat. And so Price was caught by surprise when, about two o'clock on Friday afternoon, Reports started to come in that Confederate pickets along the Jacinto Road south of Iuka were being driven in by another column of Federals. The unexpected appearance of Rosecrans Federals south of Iuka alarmed Price, 
since he immediately realized he was in imminent danger of being trapped at Ayuka between the two enemy columns. So he immediately ordered Little to send a bear to block the advance of this second Yankee force. The rebels marched nearly three miles, much of it at double quick, before arriving just east of the hill where Sanborn had halted his brigade of Federals. Price had ridden with Hebert's men part of the way and personally directed their deployment in the woods astride the road. The piece of ground where the fighting was about to take place was small and rugged, with little room for maneuvering. Rosecrans would later describe the ground as, quote, horrid, noting that there was, quote, no room for development. The Federals coming up the Jacinto Road from the south found that an open field stretched northward from the hilltop where Sanborn's men had halted, but the open ground did not extend back south or to the west. That meant the Yankees had great difficulty moving forward and deploying into line of battle. The nature of the ground particularly hampered the placement of the Federal artillery. The road crossed the hill at its highest point, with a wide and deep hollow draining northward, and separating the east edge of the hill from a spur to the west. Behind, or to the west, of the spur was a more narrow and shallow hollow. To the south of the road was a large wooded area. As a soldier in the 3rd Louisiana put it, quote, The whole country was a succession of valleys and hills of irregular formation, covered by a dense undergrowth. End quote and only the field north of the road was free of that thick brush, but it was studded with blackjack trees. The sudden meeting of the head of Rosecrans' column and Hebert's confederates caused both sides to shift into action. The fierce two-hour struggle that followed would be intense, violent, and bloody, and would end only when nightfall brought an end to the killing. When the Federal skirmishers spied what seemed to be a sizable enemy force ahead, Hamilton ordered them to push forward and determine just how many rebels were blocking the road to Iuka. He even rode behind them to see for himself. They advanced about 400 yards before running into Hebert's Confederates. Believing a full-scale battle was imminent, Hamilton galloped back to the head of his division and hurriedly began deploying his men from column into line. Sanborn's men, who had been resting right in the road, were ordered to form up and move off the road. The first artillery battery in the column, Lieutenant Cyrus Sears' 11th Ohio Battery, deployed in and just off the road, facing northeast. Sears' gunners had to break off and trample down a lot of hazel bushes to clear an open area to deploy the cannon. The 5th Ohio deployed to the right of Sears' guns, south of the road, and other Federal regiments extended the battle line northward. The nature of the terrain forced Sanborn to deploy his line with the right wing extending down into the thick woods south of the road and his left angled back to the northwest, behind the second, smaller hollow, and in the western edge of the field with the blackjack trees. As Sanborn was hustling his men into position, a bear's artillery opened up on the Federals across the way with canister. It was extreme range for that type of ammunition, and as the small lead balls from the enemy rounds sailed over and around the Ohio Battery, one of the Yankees likened it to, quote, being in a violent hailstorm. Hamilton was very pleased with himself for swiftly deploying into line of battle. 
he would believe it was only his quick action that had saved Rosecrans' column. In fact, Hamilton would claim later that, quote, an earlier enemy attack would have enveloped the head of the column and brought a disastrous rout. After deploying into line of battle, Hamilton's Federals hardly had time to catch their breath before across the way a bear ordered his troops to attack. The rebel artillery ceased firing as the infantry stepped out of the woods and started forward. Initially, there were only three infantry regiments in the Confederate line, but they closed with the Yankees, and the two sides stood toe-to-toe, blazing away at each other at close range, just as quickly as they could load and fire their muskets. Lieutenant Sears' 11th Ohio Battery, in its forward position, was lashed by rebel musketry and found itself at the center of the developing battle as it became the focal point of the Confederate efforts to break the Federal line. In the battery's position, men and horses were hit by the storm of bullets and fell on all sides, but the Ohio artillerymen bravely stood by their pieces, firing rounds of canister at the nearby enemy as fast as they could. By this time, Sterling Price had brought up Colonel John D. Martin's 4th Brigade of Little's Division to help Bear. As these 1,400 men, most of them from Mississippi, arrived on the scene, Martin put two of his regiments on a bear's right and two on his left, thereby lengthening the Confederate battle line. On the Federal side, Jeremiah Sullivan's brigade of Hamilton's division had come up to support Sanborn. Sullivan deployed one regiment to Sanborn's right flank and one to his left, while keeping his other two regiments behind Sanborn. But the Confederate line now extended beyond the Federals' flanks, and Hamilton desperately looked around for help. He later wrote, quote, Stanley's division seemed long in coming up. As the fighting intensified and the pressure on his line increased, Hamilton sent a total of four aides to find Rosecrans and tell him that Stanley was needed at the front as quickly as possible. Hamilton sensed the battle was reaching a crisis point. He later said, The dead lay in lines along the regiments while some of our troops gave signs of yielding. Price wondered why Ord's Federals north of Iuka were remaining strangely quiet, but he wasn't going to look a gift horse in the mouth, and he took the opportunity to shift more troops south to help a bear. He ordered up the other two brigades of Little's Division, Colonel Elijah Gates' 1st Brigade and Brigadier General Martin Green's 3rd Brigade. Henry Little was not only Sterling Price's most trusted subordinate, he was a close personal friend. Little had been with Price since the early days of the war with the Missouri State Guard. Now, at Iuka, Little started Gates and Green's brigades south, and then he rode on ahead to confer with Price. Little found the general sitting on his horse in the road at the edge of the battlefield, talking with Hebert and another officer. Price's back was to the Federal lines, and Little faced him. While the men talked, a stray bullet passed under Price's arm and hit Little square in the forehead, killing him instantly. While a distraught Price worked to pull himself together, Little's body was carried back to Iuka. Just then, the fight for the hill was reaching a fever pitch. As the Confederate pressure increased, the firing reached a crescendo. 
Will Tunnard, the regimental historian of the 3rd Louisiana, wrote of how, quote, the smoke enveloped both lines so that they became invisible to each other. The lines could be distinguished only by the flash of the guns. The evening was one of those damp, dull, cloudy ones which caused the smoke to settle down about as high as a man's head. Lieutenant Sears' 11th Ohio Battery suffered horribly from the concentrated fire of the nearby Confederates. As the range closed, the Ohioans loaded their guns with double rounds of canister and blasted the rebels. The Federal infantry, though, to Sears' left, began to give way when Colonel Norman Eddy was wounded and his 48th Indiana panicked and fell back into the woods. The 5th Iowa to Sears' right was, quote, cut to pieces. Lieutenant Henry M. Neal later wrote that the battery, quote, found itself facing in three directions and battling with masses on three fronts. It had a rear but no flanks. The guns were being worked with greater speed and smaller crews. Cannoneers were falling. Other cannoneers took their places and performed double duty. Drivers left their dead horses and took the places of dead or wounded comrades, only to be struck down in turn. End quote. Only three of the battery's 80 horses survived the carnage, and of the 97 men who manned the Ohio battery, 18 were killed, 39 were wounded, and two were missing, which are extraordinary losses for an artillery battery during a Civil War battle. The most intense phase of the Battle of Iuka lasted about 30 minutes before the Federal First Line gave way, including what was left of Sears' battery. As a bear's Confederates topped the hill, they in turn were exposed to more intense fire and took even heavier casualties. To make matters worse, there were some friendly fire incidents on the Rebel side. The Federal Line quickly stabilized as Stanley's division came up just as Hamilton's men fell back and Hamilton's troops stopped and rallied just behind the crest of the hill. Sears' guns, though, with so many battery horses shot down, had to be abandoned, and they fell into Confederate hands. Sears had been severely wounded and carried to the rear. Only three of Stanley's fresh regiments managed to join the fighting in time to fire their weapons near the end of the battle, replacing some of Hamilton's shaken units in the firing line. On the Confederate side, Gates and Green's brigades of Little's division also arrived too late to take much part in the fighting or to follow up Bear's and Martin's success because darkness put an end to further combat. The battle was over by 6 p.m. The soldiers of both sides slept on their arms that night. Bear and Martin together had about 3,200 men engaged and lost 525. Bear bore the brunt of the losses, suffering 408 casualties. Bear's attack had saved, Sterling Price, had saved Sterling Price's army from being caught in Grant's pincers, but tactically it wasn't a decisive victory for the rebels. In the fighting south of Iuka, they had pushed the Federals back only about 600 yards, and there was still Ord's force north of town to contend with. At the front of Rosecrans' column, Sanborn and Sullivan had 2,800 men engaged and suffered 790 casualties. 
On Ord's front, the other arm of the Union pincers never got into action on September 19th. All day long, Ord and Grant had been waiting for the sound of Rosecrans' guns. They waited in vain, because an acoustic shadow, like the one that would factor into the Battle of Perryville, also affected the outcome of the fighting here at Iuka. Because of the nature of the terrain and the atmospheric conditions, neither Grant nor Ord heard any of the sounds of battle from the fight raging south of town. Grant had finally told Ord to advance slowly toward Iuka and drive in the enemy pickets, but not to press forward unless he heard the sound of Rosecrans' guns to the south. And as Tracy just said, the acoustic shadow prevented the sounds of battle from reaching Ord, so one half of Grant's pincer attack never got off the ground. That night, Grant received a message from Rosecrans, written at 20 to 1 that afternoon from Barnett's Crossroads, about eight miles from Iuka, in which Rosecrans just let Grant know that the head of his column had made it that far and his advance was continuing. The courier had been forced to take a circuitous route to reach Burnsville with that message, and no other word reached Grant that night concerning the battle or anything else. It wasn't until about 8.30 on the morning of September 20th that Grant finally received a dispatch from Rosecrans mentioning the combat the previous day. It had been written at 10.30 the evening of the 19th, and it relayed a short account of the fighting. Rosecrans urged Grant to push Ord forward and attack on the 20th. And Grant wasted no time in ordering Ord to press forward, but the question was, would there be any Confederate force left in Iuka for Ord to attack? After the fighting came to an end on Friday evening, as darkness covered the battlefield, Price's initial plan was to hold his ground and renew the attack on Rosecrans in the morning. Dabney Mari's division had been left in place all day on the 19th to keep an eye on Ord's Federals, but that night Price moved all of Mari's troops south of town to be in position to join in the assault on Rosecrans on Saturday morning, and Price left only the cavalry under Armstrong and Colonel Wirt Adams in front of Ord. Price's plan was to deal with Rosecrans first, since that enemy force threatened to cut off the roads that would easily carry Price to link up with Van Dorn. And Price, desperately tired and grieving the death of Henry Little, went to bed sometime past midnight to try and get a few hours sleep before the fighting resumed in the morning. The battlefield was a sad and dangerous place that night. When the fighting had ended, the Confederate line was a bit over 200 yards beyond the position of Sears Battery. Green's brigade was ordered to move up and relieve a Bears troops shortly after dark. As they pulled back, a Bears men took the guns of the 11th Ohio Battery with them, rolling the captured Federal cannon down the road to the rear. The moon was nearly full that night and the sky was clear. Dead bodies and abandoned equipment lay all over the hill, clearly visible in the pale moonlight. A soldier in Green's brigade said, quote, Everything bore evidence of the bloody character of the action. The dead were so thick that one could very readily have stepped about on them, and the bushes were so lopped and twisted together, so tangled and broken down in every conceivable manner, that the desperate nature of the struggle was unmistakable. End quote. 
The scene was particularly striking at the 11th Ohio Battery's position, where dead horses littered the ground. A caisson had flipped over backward, pinning a still-living horse beneath it. The poor animal struggled vainly for hours to free itself. Wounded soldiers still lay on the ground as well. It all was almost too much for a Confederate veteran of Wilson's Creek and Pea Ridge, who said, quote, I have been on many battlefields, but never witnessed so small a space comprised as many dead as were lying immediately around this battery. The groans and cries of the wounded for help and water, the floundering of crippled horses and harness, the calls of those passing to and fro in search of and bearing off the wounded, rendered this scene very gloomy, sad, and impressive. To make matters worse, the two sides remained in such close proximity to each other that it was dangerous to move. The lines were a mere 70 yards apart, and one could see quite a distance in the moonlight, so all night long, nervous pickets on both sides were firing at shadows. Price's plans for renewing the battle south of town first thing in the morning started to unravel even while he was trying to get a few hours sleep. That's because after midnight, Confederate officers started to filter into Price's headquarters with gloomy reports, which they related to Major Thomas Sneed, Price's chief of staff. Bear arrived and expressed his opinion that his brigade was badly demoralized by their heavy losses and by the news of Henry Little's death. He was uncertain how well they would perform if called upon to renew the attack the next morning. Mari arrived, too, and gave his opinion that Ord would certainly not remain idle north of Iuka while Price concentrated on Rosecrans, and the rebel cavalry was obviously not strong enough to hold Ord back. One of the Confederate cavalry commanders, Wirt Adams, also showed up and supported Mari's views. Sneed wondered what to do. Price was fast asleep, having left instructions not to disturb him until it was time to prepare for the dawn attack. But then a member of Van Dorn's staff arrived with a message, and Sneed finally decided to wake his commander. It was nearly dawn by that point, and Price assumed he was being roused because it was time to make the final preparations to renew the attack. Much to his surprise and disgust, Price was confronted instead with an overwhelming chorus advising retreat. He tried to talk his subordinates out of their fears, but failed, so he reluctantly gave the order for his army to withdraw. Fortunately, the supply and ordnance trains were already packed up, so the wagons could start to roll out immediately, and the Confederate infantry followed them at first light. Mari's division was last to leave Iuka at 8 a.m., with the rebel cavalry following behind. And so, when Ord pushed forward that morning, he found nothing but thin air in front of him. When Grant received the news that Price was gone, he immediately rode into Iuka and discovered that the Confederates had withdrawn south by way of the Fulton Road. That surprised Grant, since he had assumed Rosecrans was blocking all of the roads in that direction. The truth was that Rosecrans had not only failed to block that road, but had done virtually nothing all night, and was not ready to push forward toward Iuka Saturday morning and certainly not ready to mount a pursuit of the retreating rebels. If Rosecrans had blocked the Fulton Road as Grant had expected him to do, then the only route that would have been open to Price would have been eastward. 
It would have been immensely more difficult, but not impossible for him to escape in that direction. At any rate, the Federals sent only a small cavalry force along the Fulton Road to locate Price. No pursuit was attempted. The Union soldiers wandered through Iuka or examined the previous day's battlefield. Hamilton's men, in particular, were just as amazed by the terrible scene on the hill as the Confederates had been the night before. The retreating rebels had left Sears captured guns near the eastern base of the hill. All of them were spiked, and the Confederates had damaged the guns' carriages with axes. Parties roamed the small battlefield to retrieve the remaining wounded and bury the dead. They found eighteen dead horses and one tangled mass at the battery site. Lieutenant Henry Neal's horse had been hit by seven balls, but survived and was retrieved by Neal. The horse died two years after the war while standing in its stall because a bullet it had carried since Iuka finally, according to Neal, worked its way into an artery. Rosecrans ordered Lieutenant Neal to rebuild the battery since Sears had been put out of action by a wound the day before, and Neal set to work unspiking the tubes, repairing the carriages, and finding men and horses to replace the unit's losses. The 11th Ohio Battery was ready for action again within two weeks. The campaign in northern Mississippi thus far had resulted in little good for the Confederates. Because he was torn between Bragg's expectations and Van Dorn's obstinacy, Price's indecision and delays had meant he'd failed to prevent the transfer of reinforcements to Buell, failed to move up into Tennessee to directly support Bragg, and had nearly suffered a devastating defeat at Iuka. The only thing settled by September 20th, as Price slipped away from Iuka, was that a link-up between Price's little army and Van Dorn's force was now inevitable. After Iuka, Van Dorn would provide the decisive leadership that Price had failed to show, although Van Dorn's leadership would be the same kind he had exhibited at Pea Ridge, that is, reckless and rash. And although the two finely combined Confederate forces would make a formidable army, they had to contend with an equally strong opponent in Grant's command. All of that's to say that the course of the war in northern Mississippi was about to shift into high gear as September 1862 gave way to October. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Darkest Days of the War, The Battles of Iuka and Corinth by Peter Cousins. Um, yeah, we're fans of Peter Cousins anyway, but this particular book about this pair of relatively little-known battles is a home run in our opinion, and we highly recommend it. So that's The Darkest Days of the War, The Battles of Iuka and Corinth by Peter Cousins. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations in one handy list at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. All right, so this has been a pretty long one, but as we wrap things up, we still want to take a minute to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Jared, Russ, and Cal. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 
1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we jump into the story of the Battle of Corinth, which took place over two days in the first week of October 1862. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.